Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, August the 8th, 2022, in the real world, not in the virtual world or in the world that we take for granted. We've been skirting around the issue of reality, fiction, and fantasy, and fact, uh, with a number of writers recently. Uh, last week, I did a show with the novelist uh, Liska Jacobs, The Pink Hotel, a, a novel about reality or her reality in Los Angeles. And for, for her, what she needed to do was go and stay in her fictional pink hotel, the uh, the Beverly Hills Hotel in order to make sense of reality. We also did a show with the novelist Dwyer Murphy last week, An Honest Living, uh, a fictional recreation of New York City in which imagines uh, the world as a kind of cinema. And I just did a show earlier today with Anthony Mara, another novelist, Mercury Pictures Presents, in which he presents a Hollywood of the 1930s in which the guys in Hollywood were bent on recreating reality, on creating a kind of um, virtual reality. Virtual reality, of course, is something we've been dealing with regularly on the show. Did one show a couple of weeks ago with Matthew Ball, the author of The Metaverse and how it will revolutionize everything. The people of Silicon Valley think that their metaverse it's the first time this idea of virtual reality has ever existed, but of course they're wrong, as they're wrong about many other things. Although this digital brave new world of meta or TikTok, where we imagine that the internet is more real than our reality, is something that is worrying many people, including myself. I wrote an essay a couple of weeks ago about the metaverse not being able to save us. My guest today on the show is not a novelist, he's a philosopher, but he's a philosopher of virtual reality. Uh, and he has a book out called Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. Uh, David J. Chambers also teaches at NYU and is uh, one of the world's leading authorities uh, on cognitive science and on our relationship with digital technology. And I'm thrilled and honored that the real David, not the virtual David, is joining us from uh, one of his retreats in upstate New York. Uh, David, uh, how can I be convinced that you're for real and that you're not augmented reality? You're not a bot? A little tricky. I've done a few of these, uh, you know, these interviews and podcasts by now. And you know, maybe I'm just sending my sending my avatar along. Um, I trained up the avatar on one of those uh, one of those machine learning systems on a bunch of things I'd said in the past. I got a video deepfake going, and I uh, I just sent him along to talk to you. Hard for you to know, really. David, your maybe book uh, Reality Plus. Um, there's no space between the reality and the plus, and so my first. Um, lower third for you, I put a space and you told me to correct it. What's the difference between reality plus where there's no space between the reality and the plus and where there is a space? I don't know. When I see the, pl when I see the space, I think it must be reality plus something. And I want to know 
what is the something that's being added to reality. When I see it without the space, reality plus, I just see that as like supersized reality, big reality, a lot of um, a lot of reality. And that's really what reality plus means for me is like there may be a lot more to reality than what we think. We think of reality as, you know, the universe, the physical universe we experience. But once you start bringing in the idea of virtual realities, then we can actually, in a way, create our own realities. Every time we create a virtual world, that's a new reality. So we may eventually have this, yeah, the so-called metaverse of new virtual realities added to physical reality. That's one part of reality plus. Also going along with this is the idea that it, it could be, for all we know, that we are ourselves in a virtual reality in a kind of simulation. And perhaps there are realities beyond us. There's a reality in which this world was created. If so, even more realities. That way we get you know, the vast multiverse or metaverse of reality plus. Yeah, we did a show on the metaverse with Neil Stevenson, who, the mm -hmm. science fiction writer who invented the term. And he told me invented it as a kind of joke, although I guess a lot of this stuff is supposed to be funny. You talk about schools of philosophy in your book, and, and you just mentioned them. Um, is one of these schools, and I, and I, I'm, I'm trying to pronounce this name right, panpsychism? Is this the idea that um, a philosophy of mind is that the world itself might be an invention? Yeah, well, panpsychism in the philosophy of mind is the thesis that everything has a mind. Pan means all, psych means mind. So panpsychism is the idea there's some level of mind that permeates every level of nature. That's a thesis about consciousness and the mind, something I've actually, my day job is thinking about, uh, thinking about consciousness. This book is thinking about, you know, realities, uh, physical and artificial realities. And here, I guess, yeah, the idea that this world is a creation. I mean, the, the contemporary version of this is, could this world be a simulation, maybe a computer simulation? But this is actually an idea that goes back thousands and years, thousands of years in philosophy by saying, you know, in ancient Chinese philosophy, people wondered, could this world be a dream. In ancient Indian philosophy, people wondered, could this world be an illusion? In ancient Greek philosophy, Plato wondered, could the world that we experience just be shadows on the cave wall? These are all kind of versions of that simulation idea, but a very long history in philosophy. I guess the one general school of thought here is idealism, the thesis that the whole, the whole world is part of someone's mind. And if you think of the whole world being a dream, for example, that would be a version of idealism. It seems like the sort of the two founding fathers, both of materialism uh, and, um, and the idealism that you talk about, are both English philosophers, George Berkeley, an idealist, and, and Thomas Hobbes, perhaps the most realist of all realists. Is there? Am I, am I simplifying things, um, David? As you say, there's a long history, particularly in Western philosophy, which stems from, from Plato. Who, who are the most important 
philosophers in terms of modern thinking about virtual reality? And yeah, I mean, you're what, right. This is a this is a uh, view with a very long tradition, and yet to put uh, Barclay and Hobbes front and center. I mean, they're very important in the Western tradition, but you can find traces of these things much longer ago. Uh, ancient Indian philosophy, you know, the Buddha seemed to be a kind of idealist. He said, you know, the world is a world of consciousness. Or later Buddhist figures like Vasubandhu had versions of idealism thousand years plus before uh, before Barclay. The ancient Greek philosopher Democritus was a materialist, thought the whole world is made out of matter long before Hobbes. But you're right, it's a tradition. These days, um, you know, materialism is a very important, uh, it's a very important central doctrine for thinking about consciousness and the mind. You think, okay, the mind is basically the brain. The mind is made out of matter. It's all physical reality. But there are also idealists and panpsychists out there who say, no, actually, the physical world is made out of consciousness. It's not that consciousness is made from the physical world and that matter is fundamental. Actually, mind is fundamental and the world is made out of that. I actually like a view, when thinking about virtual reality, I actually like a view distinct from both of those. And that's the idea that the world is somehow made out of information. People sometimes call this the it from bit view, that you know the world is ultimately a set of bits, ones and zeros interacting appropriately. And if we're in a simulation, then at least it looks like you know our own world could somehow be an information-based reality. So it's not that mind is fundamental. It's not that matter is fundamental. Maybe information is fundamental. Very natural view for thinking about virtual reality. How does that play out, David, to AI? We've had some AI experts on the show. Uh, Toby Wolf, uh, Toby Walsh, for example, he has a new book out, Machines Behaving Badly, The Morality of AI. What, what is that? How should that encourage us to think about machines that supposedly replicate us or reflect us or perhaps even emulate us? I mean, one possibility is that we are ourselves machines who are you know, running programs of our own. If, for example, we are part of a giant simulation, then, you know, we may be simulations ourselves, in which case we are already artificial intelligences. Okay, that's giant speculation. But even if you don't think we are already artificial intelligences, you might well think that, yeah, the, the amazing capacities of the brain are all capacities which could be replicated in a computer. And people who are right now working with AI or working on replicating our capacities in machines, we may eventually be possible to, to simulate our brains completely um, on artificially intelligent machines, have a computer that basically replicates all of the functioning of my brain. And that's one possible path to artificial intelligence. Um, that raises, of course, the question, would you would you actually choose to upload yourself into a uh, machine if this was offered to you? Would it be a form of immortality um, or would it be a form of, you know, of death? Would it be living forever or would it be snuffing yourself out? Um, people are still debating that one in the philosophy of AI. David, what do you make of the current state of virtual reality, second life? Meta, of course, as Mark Zuckerberg's trying to transform Facebook into 
uh, Meta, um, Fortnite, and then devices like Meta Quest 2, which enable us to see another kind of reality. Uh, when I talked with um, Matthew Ball, the author of The Metaverse, he suggested that we're still in a fairly early stage. Uh, do you look at things like Second Life seriously, or are they still so so um, so unformed as to be laughable? I take them seriously. I mean, there are a lot of virtual worlds around right now. That said, it's still very obvious we're in the very early stages of uh, of virtual worlds. I mean, virtual worlds have been everywhere since anywhere there's a video game, there's a virtual world in a way. Or a know, novel. I mean, what's the, the difference you get... between, you know, Plato's image on the cave or film or a book or a painting? Aren't they all forms of virtuality? In a broad sense, you can all say there are simulations of a kind. These days, we reserve the word virtual reality for computer-based realities. And people also tend to reserve it these days for realities which are immersive. You experience them all around you and they're interactive. So even Second Life is actually, it's computer-based and it's interactive. It's not yet immersive. Second Life, most people experience on a two-dimensional computer screen. What's been new the last few years has been real virtual reality technology that you know you experience through a headset. You put on a headset uh, like the MetaQuest 2 illustrated here. And um, you then experience a virtual world all around you. Um, that said, you know, we're in the very early days of virtual reality. People use it these days mostly for some very simple applications like, uh, you know, um, exercise or dance or various video games. There's been no social virtual world in VR that's even gotten to the level of that Second Life got to 10 years ago on people's two-dimensional computer screen. But it's coming. I mean, there's no doubt it's coming. Meta right, is it's... putting so much into virtual reality. Apple is said to be putting so much into virtual reality. They'll be releasing, uh, an a lot of people think they're going to be announcing a product in the, next, uh, in the next six months or so. So it's just obvious that the technology is going in this direction to the point where we will all be inhabiting uh, these immersive virtual world, some considerable amount of the time, possibly even living parts of our life there, you know, uh, not just entertainment, but in principle, um, doing a lot of our work there, um, meeting with our, you know, with our family there and our, and our loved ones, maybe even building communities and building relationships there. So primitive now and be a bulky and annoying, these headset headsets, but once they slim down to a simpler form factor, maybe glasses and the and the technology improves, you know, in 20 years or so, we could all be spending a lot of time there. Plus chip implants out here in Silicon Valley, David, as I'm sure you know, everyone always says it's early until it's too late and then it's yeah. inevitable. Uh, we had Ray Kurzweil on the show, one of the great visionaries of the world that I think you're imagining uh, 10 years ago. Um, and he had a book out then, How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. I guess, mm -hmm. theoretically, this virtual reality is going both ways, that people like Kurtz will believe that we can actually replicate humanity through technology. How does that fit in with your philosophy of um, virtual worlds? Well, yeah, in a way, these two technologies are complementary. We've got virtual reality on the one hand, and we've got artificial intelligence on 
the other hand, artificial intelligence is all about creating artificial minds using computer technology and, you know, simulating the brain or coming up with alternative brains based on computational processes. Virtual reality is all about creating artificial worlds, simulating the world on a computer or coming up with artificial worlds, again, based on computer technology. And this is wonderful, say, for a philosopher like me, because philosophy is basically, in a way, the study of the mind, the world, and the relationship between them. And here we have these two technologies for artificial minds and for artificial worlds, both of which have been developing really fast the last 10 years. They're not yet. Um, they're not yet where they will be, but they're developing really fast. So that allows me, the philosopher, to ask questions like, will these artificial minds that we're developing now, will they be genuine minds? Will they be conscious? Will they be creative? Can they really think? And likewise, when it comes to the artificial worlds, the virtual realities that we're creating, are these real worlds? Are these genuine realities? Are these places where someone can actually live a meaningful life? And my own approach to both questions is to say, yes, artificial minds can be real minds. And yes, artificial worlds, virtual worlds can be genuine worlds. Virtual reality can be genuine reality. David, isn't the real business, though, of the philosopher not questioning the reality, the epistemological reality, but figuring out what this does to us as humans? Uh, Hannah Arendt, for example, in her great work, The Human Condition, uh, wondered about, uh, for example, what the conquest of space would do to us uh, uh, as human beings. W what are your thoughts on this in terms of the impact of all this virtual reality, this technology on us? Are you in the Arendtian camp who sees technology as being the thing in itself, the heart of the matter in terms of figuring out humans in the 21st century? I think technology is, a is already a very central part of the human condition. And I guess I want to put humans at the center of all this. I mean, I, I focus on consciousness. I think we are conscious beings. Consciousness is what gives our life meaning and value. And the physical world is a way to kind of enable that meaning and value in our lives. We can have amazing experiences. We can have amazing relationships with other conscious beings. We can build communities and common projects. And what I would like to think is that at least in principle, it's possible for all that to happen in a virtual world. You can have amazing experiences. You can have relationships, communities, common projects. So I would like to argue, at least in principle, you can lead a meaningful life in a virtual world. But that's not to say uh, that life in a virtual reality is necessarily going to be wonderful. It's just to say it's going to be meaningful. Um, it could be awful. Life in physical reality is very often awful. There's lots of ways that virtual reality can go wrong. There's also lots of ways it can it can go well. So we can look at sort of utopian aspects of virtual reality. You know, everybody has a uh, has a world to themselves. Maybe there'll be equal access to uh, to all kinds of goods that there's not access to in the physical world. We can also see dystopian aspects, especially if these virtual worlds are controlled by corporations 
like uh, like Meta and so on, with their own incentives, it's very easy to see how the incentives for the creator, for the creators of these virtual worlds, will be very different from the incentives of the people um, inhabiting them. So I guess, as a philosopher, I look at this and say, well, it's just a, it will be a new form of life, and like every new technology, there are going to be ways it can, it can be used for good, ways it can be used for bad. And for us, very unphilosophical, though, David, it's sort of very much of a rad says, well, it could be good, it could be bad. I mean, don't we need to return, for example, to as philosophers to the Marxist tradition of seeing some of this as a kind of opium of the people? Because as we see Second Life and Meta and Fortnite, we see an increasing consolidation of power, a tiny techno elite, a massive underclass when AI replaces us most of us won't have work shouldn't we be more concerned with this in a socio-economic sense or is marx not really a philosopher i'm not myself an expert on marx but there's many different philosophical traditions and i would say this phenomenon the possibility that vr can be used as an opium for the masses is one that we need to take very seriously of course it's happening already without new world i mean uh huxley wasn't a marxist to see all this as a as a narcotic of one kind or another. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's possible it could be used that way, but it's also entirely possible that virtual worlds could be used by people, for example, on the outside of society to build communities, uh, to build relationships, which are in a way, you know, rebelling against, um, against the mainstream. You already see a lot of, I mean, virtual worlds right now, even in the primitive um, VR systems we have, whether it's in VR chat or Second Life, it's very frequently a venue for people who are uh, who are on the outside coming in to get together and build their own autonomous communities to express themselves, um, to build common projects. So I think you know, there's real, again, there's the potential for both. I'm not myself a social and political theorist, so I wouldn't come to me first for the for the Marxist analysis of what's going on in these cases. But um, but I like to strike a middle path between the you know the utopianism and the dystopianism, which is which is very common these days. David, we had uh, Ed Yong on a science writer on the show recently talking about how we need to rethink our relations with other species. He has a new book out, "An Immense World: How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us." And it seems to me as if it's no coincidence that just as we seem to be migrating as a species to machines, or maybe machines are migrating to us, or it becomes increasingly hard to separate us and machines, so we're losing what Marx calls our species being. Um, we're increasingly intrigued with learning what it's like to be other creatures. Um, what does the history of philosophy tell us about humans and other species and and, and, and and why at certain points in the history of philosophy we've become more interested in, in what it's like to be another creature? I'd say that through the, yeah, the history of philosophy and science, there's been an expanding circle here of seeing you know, increasingly many beings as conscious and as worthy of moral consideration. You know, for a long time, it might have been thought only humans are uh, are genuinely conscious. Rene Descartes thought that you know, even his dog uh, did not really have conscious experiences. It was just an automaton. And then I think you know people gradually came to recognize 
that at the very least, most you know mammals are potentially conscious with subjective experiences of their own. These days, I think most people are prepared to say, at least scientists and philosophers in the area, by and large, have consensus that birds and fish are conscious being. And now people are arguing about about insects. My colleague at uh, at NYU, uh, Tom Nagel, um, a few decades ago, wrote a very influential article called "What Is It Like to Be a Bat?" Yeah. Said, well, we don't know exactly what it's like to be a bat using sonar. Probably quite foreign to us, but there, there must be something it's like. The bat is having subjective experiences, and he used that to get at the problems of consciousness, but it also has big uh, consequences for thinking about morality insofar as, for example, you know, um, pigs or chicken or fish are actually conscious beings, then that means, okay, they can suffer. They're really having subjective experiences. We have to take that into account in our moral deliberations. And that's one consideration that sends many people, at least in the direction of becoming, say, vegetarian or vegan, because these non-human animals are conscious moral agents. David, do you think that we're close to technology which will enable me, Andrew Keane, to imagine what it's like to be David Chalmers or vice versa? Or is that always going to be the holy grail in terms of being able to slot consciousness in to another being, another species, another person? I think that's probably a long way off. I mean, there are some limited things we can do right now, for example, with virtual reality. VR can enable you at least to inhabit, say, an avatar that has the perspective of another person. Maybe you could put on a camera and I could experience, you know, at least your your physical environment through my headset, or I could experience the physical environment of a, a bird or a fish of somebody, you know, strapped appropriately appropriate equipment to their heads. But that wouldn't really tell me what it's like to be a bird or a fish. It would just give me the perspective from a bird's or a fish's body to really know what it's like to be, say, a bat. I'd have to have my brain somehow, you know, reconfigured into a uh, into kind of processes which are analogous to what goes on in a bat. And that's not something we have any clue how to do right now. People are working on brain-computer interfaces. Maybe once, for example, we can upload um, our brains to computers, then it will become much more possible to uh, swap in and swap out, say, perceptual modules. Maybe I'll get a sonar module and that will tell me something about what it's like to use a bat using, to be a bat using sonar. But that's very distant mind brain technology, not something we have right now. And if that ever happens, it spells the end of the self, doesn't it? Because we're no longer isolated in prison within ourselves. If we can swap in, in and out other people or other species, consciousness and feelings, then what what is the future of David Chalmers, for example, as an isolated, independent thing? Well, we're selves are already dynamic. You know, they change a lot over time. We have transformative experiences that kind of change very deeply who we are. It may well be that once we have once we have this kind of brain technology, then transformative experiences will be rather easier and more common. Uh, to happen, we'll be able to at least experiment with being very different kinds of being. I don't know that actually gets rid of the self. I'd say even when you transform yourself, it's still yourself you are transforming, but it does make the self less of a single fixed, unchanging thing. 
and much more of a dynamic entity. Who or what would you like to feel, to imagine, to be? Oh boy, I don't know. I mean, you can uh, you can talk about. I would like to, you know, know what's going on everywhere in the universe. So, okay, maybe I'll. I'd like to take on the perspective of, say, a, a god who's who's created this world and to know everything that's going on and experience the entire universe at once. If we're if we're we don't know how to do this, but if we're being ambitious, why not? Yeah, give me the uh, the perspective from. I think it was in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Zephod Bibelbrox called it the total perspective vortex. Um, you have a the sense god of what perspective. Like to, the, the god what it's like to know everything. Yeah, I and I wanted to um, introduce David God, um, Megan uh, Ogiblian. Uh, she has a really good book out, and actually, I think it needs to be re read with yours. They're both very good. Real your Reality Plus and her God, Human, Animal, Machine. She deals with a lot of the same subjects as you. And when I was reading her book, it seemed to me her background is as a Christian, and she seems her whole narrative seems. Uh, probably a failed attempt to escape her theology. Is a lot of this stuff just religious people modernizing religion and figuring out a way back in through the back door to philosophy? People like Ogiblian. I'm not saying you. Do you have any religious background, by the way? I don't myself. I've always considered myself an, an atheist. Um, you know, maybe there could be a God out there, but I've never thought there's any special reason to believe so i don't uh, i don't worship i don't adopt religious ethical traditions that said it is true that the whole simulation idea provides you one route to the possibility of a god one that maybe even a former atheist can take seriously if you take seriously the idea that this could be a simulation and i do because simulation technology actually you know exists already it's developing um, we know it will be eventually be possible to have simulations indistinguishable from reality. That raises the question, could we be in a simulation? And if we're in a simulation, then the next question obviously is, well, who is the simulator? Who created the simulation? And that simulator might for us play some of the roles, have some of the properties of a traditional God. Well, they created this part of the universe. They're potentially all-powerful and all-knowing with respect to this part of the universe. On the other hand, not much reason to think they're all good or all wise. It could just be a hacker in the next uh, in the next universe up. Not much reason to think we should build a religion around them. So I don't know. So ultimately, I think I don't think the simulation idea really supports, um, you know, full scale religious ideas. But it is true that for some people, it at least uh, it at least finds a, a naturalistic and science compatible um, approach to some ideas previously only associated with religion. David, what becomes of philosophy and philosophers if everything is a simulation, if there's nothing concrete behind anything? I mean, Plato, of course, imagined that, I guess, in a way, in the Republic, figured out a way, invented Western philosophy as, as, as a fix to that. But what happens if, if everything simply is a simulation? If well, simulation thing, is truth? Well, and maybe thing, that word is even inappropriate truth. I, I use that word in a non-philosophical sense. Well, one thing we can say is even if the physical world is a simulation, our experience of the physical world is real. We are still conscious creatures. In a way, this goes back to Descartes, who said, I can doubt the physical world, but I can't doubt 
myself. I'm thinking here, I think, therefore I am, I exist. So at the very least, we've got ourselves, our consciousness as parts of reality. I would also go on to argue, many people say simulations are illusions. If we're in a simulation, this is not real. That's something which, you know, central theme of this book is that that view is wrong. Actually, if we're in a, even if we're in a simulation, it's still real. It's a form of reality. It's a digital form of reality, but that's no less real than physical reality. So I say, and that's something, that's a conclusion you can get to, I think, through a correct philosophical analysis of the situation. Finally, all of these simulations are going to have to be ultimately grounded, I think, in some fundamental level of reality, which is, uh, you know, unsimulated reality. So if you want some unsimulated bedrock, um, you know, the simulation idea doesn't tell you that nothing is real or nothing is fundamental. It just tells us the universe may be much larger and more expansive than we thought. I think, David, one of the good things about this, obviously, we're, we're certainly not going to come to a conclusion one way or the other, you and I, on this. Um, one of the good things is it, it may not be bringing religion back, but it's bringing philosophy back. And for, the, for a kid who's on Second Life or Fortnight all the time, you teach at NYU, or you find, as a philosopher, you're an unambiguous philosopher, an unashamed philosopher. Philosophy is still a, it's probably not the most fashionable of subjects. Are you finding that the kind of kids who are coming to NYU, who have spent their teenage years on the internet, addicted to their devices, are they more interested now in philosophy and the kinds of questions that you raise? Yeah, I teach a class every year on minds and machines. And certainly at least, you know, the students who take this class, yeah, a lot of them are just, they're digital natives. I mean, a lot of some of these theses, virtual reality is genuine reality. A lot of them take this as obvious. It's like, yeah, of course, well, I've lived half my life in virtual worlds. Of course it's real. Of course it's meaningful. And some of them, you know, not everyone has to think about that philosophically, but I do think there's a hunger for people to think philosophically about these environments these technologies they're actually using. And I think this is a more general phenomenon as technology advances. Um, it's just becoming, it's been an increasing desire, I think, for philosophical analysis, say, of what's going on with artificial intelligence? How is it impacting our lives? Is it actually okay to spend spend time in, a, in virtual reality? And it's not the case that, you know, philosophy is, may never be absolutely to everybody's taste, but I do find that underneath, you know, poker scientist, poker technologist, poker, uh, poker STEM student and so on, there's very often a philosopher underneath. And maybe people are used to, you know, talking about these issues mostly late at night after a few drinks in the, uh, in the bar, having a student bull session. But I think actually thinking you can think about this stuff rigorously, too. And that's what philosophy tries to do. Well, your book, uh, Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy, is very rigorous and very readable. Congratulations on that, David. What other philosophy books should people be reading, do you think? Uh, are you just returning them to the classics, to Plato and so on? Oh, there are, there are, so, there are so many great uh, philosophy books. One, just on this theme of the philosophy of technology, there was a very nice book by Nick Bostrom yeah. um, five, six years ago, Superintelligence philosophical analysis of what happens when AI gets, uh, gets, you know, extraordinary. Are you capacity. in the Bostrom camp, David? Yeah, I tend to be sympathetic with these views that 
superintelligence is possible and also of huge importance, as in it could go very well or it could go very badly. And we need to manage how it's done to make sure it goes, uh, it goes well and not badly. Um, here's a very different book uh, I read recently.